Welcome to Mortals, the podcast where we explore how humans have managed their dead throughout history. From barrows and burials to cremations and kurgans, we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about death in the Klondike. Please be advised, this episode contains mentions of starvation, disease, child mortality, animal abuse to the point of death, natural disasters, cannibalism, again, and of course, death. Now let's get on to the show. Hey, y'all. How are you doing this week? <laughs> doing good. Doing good. Surviving. You know, the, it's the apocalypse outside, but we're in here recording, so that's great. Feel safe in my studio. Uh, this week's topic is Death in the Klondike, which was a gold rush for anyone who is unaware. Not the ice cream bar? Not the ice cream bar. Uh, I actually have, don't think I've ever had one of those ice cream bars. I don't think I have either. I think it's an American thing. Blasphemy. <laughs> um, do you either of you know anything about the Klondike Gold Rush? Not I know in particular. Yosemite Sam. He was in the Klondike, right? <laughs> or was he just in the Gold Rush? So you, Yosemite Sam might have been in Yosemite. Yosemite maybe. <laughs> oh yeah, because that's a place and not just a Looney Tune name. Uh, <laughs> His name was always just like Yo Samity. You know, <laughs> yo, Samity, and Sam was short for Samity. Yo, know. what's up, Samity? This uh, is our most, this is our most non-American episode yet. <laughs> Don't know what a Klondike bar is. Don't oh, know what Yosemite is. I'm like, I know a little bit about the gold rush, because I spent a lot of time in, like, a gold rush-based village uh, growing up, but it is... Most definitely not in the Klondike, as it was 40 friggin' degrees every summer. Uh, I think you gotta be colder than that to classify as Klondike. So as far as, you know, Western North America is concerned, there's a lot of different gold rushes happening throughout the 1800s and early 1900s. The Klondike gold rush in particular is focused on the Klondike River in Yukon. Ah. So... Sounds to me like neither of you know anything about the Klondike Gold Rush. Fuck all, to be honest. Yeah, you'd be correct. Please educate us. Uh, Well, it's somewhat new to me as well. I knew a little bit about it, but I really got interested in this topic recently um, when I was reading, actually I was reading a fiction book, and not the best fiction book I've ever read, (laughs) as far as, you know, plot is concerned, but the story beats followed along the Klondike gold rush. And I found it very Mm -hmm. fascinating. Um, The journey that the characters were on and the things that happened along the way. It did feel a little bit like meet this historical event, then hit the next one and then hit the next one. Um, But as Mm -hmm. someone who's interested in history, that aspect was all right to me because I learned about the event through it. But as far as it being a fiction book, it didn't work very well for me that way. But it got me interested in the topic. And the reason it got me very interested in the topic is because 
the Klondike Gold Rush and getting to the Klondike that the 40,000 some odd people rushing to the Klondike did was very, very dangerous, very risky, and so many people died. And that sounds morbid, but we're morbid around here and we like to investigate and interrogate these things. So I thought, why not look into it a little further, satiate my curiosity, and make an episode out of it. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Also, 40,000 people? Yes. Primarily Americans, but there's a lot of Canadians, obviously, as well. And then some foreigners. But most of that number was Americans coming up from the West Coast. So California and Oregon. And Seattle was actually a really big funneling point for people leaving to the Klondike. Which will make sense once I explain the geography that they're battling up against. So let's get started. So on August 16th, 1896, a party of prospectors, which included a Tagish man, Tagish is a First Nation, Tagish man named Kish, who was also known as Jim Mason, or in some places called Skookum Jim, his nephew, Kagooks, who was also called Dawson Charlie sometimes, his sister, Shatla, whose English name is Kate, and Kate's, or Shatla's, American husband, George Washington Carmack, discovered gold on a place called Rabbit Creek, in the Northwest Territories, which is what Yukon was called at the time. It wasn't its own territory, Mm. which is important to know. And just out of curiosity, I looked up what the word skookum means. Um, It's a Chinook jargon word, which means a number of things, but most commonly it's associated with the word strong. So skookum Jim, he's a big guy. He's a strong guy. That's interesting because I've used the word skookum just as part of my vernacular since I was a kid. Yeah. Chinook jargon is very um, integrated into life in the Pacific Northwest. There's words that we use that we don't even realize are Chinook jargon. So skookum is one of the big ones. Okay. Yeah. Side note, isn't skookumchuck something as well? Skookumchuck is a place. I think it's an uh, unincorporated community. Yeah. So the suffix chuck means water, actually. Oh, okay. So strong water. Probably by a river then. Yeah. Hmm. Learning. Hooray. <laughs> Education. <laughs> uh, anyways, so Skookum Jim or Quiche, his sister, Shatla, his nephew, Kagooks, and George Washington Carmack find gold on Rabbit Creek. And the way that mining claims worked at the time in Canada, which Yukon was part of Canada as part of Northwest Territories at that time, is that the people who discover it can register their claims first, but they have to report it. And therefore, word spreads. And word spreads fast because people, white people, are in the Northwest Territories and in Alaska pretty much looking for gold. That's the reasons why they've made their way up here. And there are some people, prospectors, up there at the time. And those who are there at the time, they rush on in as fast as they can in 1896 and early 1897. Lots of American and Canadian prospectors had been in the area as early as the 1880s, seeking out gold deposits in places like 40 Mile, which is also in Yukon, and in Circle City, which is in Alaska. Um, So the Yukon River actually flows northward um, from the mountains, kind of in south Yukon, northwards towards the ocean. Um, Ah. And it is frozen for some months of the year, obviously the winter. So the miners who are there 
They just kind of have to hunker down for the winter, do their gold panning, collect their gold. They can't really go anywhere, essentially. They can't leave Yukon. They can't leave the area. So it takes a while for word to spread to the outside world. The good gold claims are kind of taken up by those who are already in Alaska and already in the Northwest Territories at the time. After spring breakup, people start leaving with their riches. And so in 1897, late spring, early summer, 1897, gold fever starts spreading word, particularly in Seattle, as I mentioned. People come off the ships with suitcases full of gold. People can't believe it. It's They're heavy, heavy suitcases full of gold. And people go nuts, as people do, over things like gold, over money. I don't know what it is about these shiny things and these things that can get us, you know, goods and resources with very little effort if you're someone who has them. But people love it. <laughs> so as I said earlier, between 30,000 and 40,000 people head to the Klondike. It's not all at once, but it's over the span of a very short number of years here. Primarily Americans and Canadians, but some foreigners as well, are just clamoring to try to get to the gold fields at the Klondike River to try to stake their claim. But of course, many, many other people have done it before them. In order to find these riches, these gold seekers are flooding into the traditional territories of several First Nations in the area to get to the gold strike at Bonanza Creek, what is now being called Bonanza Creek, no longer Rabbit Creek. It's gold. Bonanza of gold. So Bonanza it's a Creek. party now. <laughs> uh, which is actually, Bonanza Creek is a tributary of the Yukon and Klondike River system. So as these gold seekers are headed towards this Bonanza, they have to pass through, in order, the territories of the Tlingit First Nation, Tagish people like Skookum Jim and his nephew Kagooks, uh, the Southern Tuchone, the Northern Tuchone, and the Trondek Huechin, which Trondek, hmm, that kind of sounds like something we've been hearing. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Where does the place <laughs> name come from? <laughs> I wonder. Uh, they're also sometimes called the Han people, the Trondek Huechin, who are the final destination on the Klondike Trondek journey. Um <laughs> <laughs> so there are actually three main routes that all these gold seekers take to get to the gold fields. First, the easiest one that I'm going to describe, but it didn't actually end up getting used a lot, is an oversea route. So people were sailing, um, leaving from West Coast ports like Seattle and Vancouver and Victoria through Alaska, up around Alaska to the northern part of it, and then sailing up the Yukon River, um, which flows from the southern part of Yukon, north out towards the ocean. I saw a hand, Christia. I say, first of all, I'm sorry if I threw you off by doing that. I thought it would be less obtrusive. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so were people coming just like with, you know, Pat, Grandma, the wife, and the kids into a wagon and let's head up? Or was it like people coming up in like in full caravans? Were there groups of people? Or was it just like individual families and or just some dude with a pickaxe? And a dream. So it was really all of those things. I don't know about any grandparents, but a lot of single men, obviously. Mm. Um, a lot of men who have families, who leave their families behind in order to do this, um, whether they have an understanding with their wife or not. <laughs> 
Um, and then some entire families come up with their children, with the wife, um, with so many more things than they need in the Klondike. They need, they bring the things they don't need, like fancy dresses and things like that. And they forget to bring the things that they do need, like food and provisions. Um, they're long just jaws. seeking the gold. Exactly. They're not always the best prepared for the journey. Um, actually, the book that spurred my interest in the topic, it is about a family, a whole family that goes up. So the the father, who is the one who really, really wants to go, the wife and his kids who are young adults, I believe. I don't know if they said their ages. Anyways, it's a family that goes up. So that's the story. And families did go up. What Not everybody made it. <laughs> I was going to say, what a fun family vacation. But, uh... That's like taking a great family vacation on the Titanic, I think. Yeah, a little bit. But if they had the money to get up there in the first place on this sea route, because it was a very expensive route, they may find themselves stuck for the winter in a place they don't want to be. Because not only is the sea route expensive, but it's very time sensitive. Because the rivers up there, they freeze in the winter. And if you don't get there in time, you're stuck. If you don't get there in time, you get to experience the Franklin expedition uh, <laughs> in real life. Yeah, I hope you like lead and botulism. Uh. <laughs> uh, yes. So that's not the most well-used route, though it is the quote-unquote easiest. More used are two overland slash sea routes. So people would sail from whatever western port, Seattle, Victoria, all those kind of places along the West Coast, to Alaska. So you know how there's that little bit of Alaska that dangles down? Looks like it's dangling <laughs> down into British Columbia. We know oh, this yeah. because we're from we're all from British Columbia. <laughs> there's a little bit of Alaska that dangles down. So there's a few places in there that people would sail to. And there's two that are really, really close to each other, but they take different mountain passes. Um, one of which is the city in Alaska called Skagway. And that leads through the White Pass into a lake and river system that feeds the Yukon. And the second one is Dai, which is another city in Alaska. It's now a ghost town. Uh, Skagway still is populated, but Dai is kind of a ghost town, so to speak, um, which leads through a pass called the Chilkoot Pass. Now, the Chilkoot Pass is a traditional pass that's taken by Tlingit and Tagish traders, which is the route that Skookum, Jim, Jim Mason, Kish, all the same guy, he's got many names, is very, very familiar with, and that he took George Carmack, his brother-in-law, and his sister, Shotla. That's the route that they take, and that is the traditional route. While it is steep, it's a little bit shorter um, and more manageable. The White Pass is a lower elevation, but it's a little bit longer. So that's the trade-off that many people are making. And the decision that many of these people make is to take the lower elevation White Pass. And that's not the original name of it. It was named after some minister, Canadian guy naming some things after white guy. people. <laughs> some white guy. Yes, it's hey. white. Um, so many people at first attempt the White Pass Trail, which leads from Skagway to Lake Bennett. And then you take, as I said, the lake system that feeds into Yukon. Basically, you hike 55 kilometers or so, something some that length. And then you get to ride the river and the lakes down in a boat that you make. There is an enormous 
death toll on this trail, particularly for animals. So mm. much so that it garners the nickname the Dead Horse Trail. Oh, oh wow. my god. Um, yeah. Oh, horse. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> Come full circle, baby. <laughs> it's very marshy. There's narrow passages, like only two meter wide. It's Ooh. rocky. There's huge boulders. It's just a really, really tough trail to take. And so many of these people are very, very unprepared. They've never done something like this before. All they have is gold in their eyes and they want to get to it. And the amount of maltreatment of horses that I read about is astounding. Some of the stories report that some people just see horses just walking off cliffs, seemingly committing suicide because they can't handle it. There's horses that are wandering about without their riders. Presumably the riders have fallen off and died. There's dead bodies. There's dead animals strewn up this whole trail. So much so that people have to turn back. They can't get by the dead bodies. Things are rotting. It's disgusting. All because these people are so, so unprepared to actually make it over this mountain pass. Oh, God. Just like a lame is blockade of horses and unprepared city folk. Yes, essentially. It reminds me of, like, the... Maybe a future episode for one of us is, like, Mount Everest and all of the corpses that are still up there that are just frozen because they can't come down. Yeah, this reminded me, this whole researching this episode reminded me a little bit of that. The the snow, the mountains, all that kind of stuff. Unprepared white people. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so by late 1897, they actually closed the White Pass Trail to the foot traffic. It's just, there's too much. But eventually they, they being the Canadians, because it is in Canadian territory, so to speak, air quotes, there's a railway that's eventually constructed between 1898 and 1900, so to the bring Canadian goods in. Pacific Railway. No, it's just its own little strip of railway. Okay, it gotcha. leads basically from the ocean at Skagway up into Whitehorse, uh, I believe. Gotcha. It might go a little bit further than that. I don't remember exactly where it ends, but they end up building a railway just to move goods in Yukon. But people aren't really taking that anymore. So people finally realize, you know, maybe the First Nations groups in the region were taking the Chilkoot Pass for a reason. Hmm. Who would have thought the people who had been here for thousands of years had intimate and correct knowledge about how to traverse and survive the landscape? <laughs> Who'd have thought? Mm. Who'd have thunk it? Uh, so, the Chilkoot Pass Trail, which starts at Dai, which is the ghost, now ghost town that I talked about, but it was quite bustling at the time. Um, about 22,000 people used this trail successfully have successfully, during the gold rush to get to the Klondike goldfields. As I said, it's steeper, so that's really, really hard, but it's shorter. And right at the top of the pass is right where the border between Alaska and Canada is. So people are trudging up this mountain, and at the top, who do they meet but the Northwest Mounted Police, the police force in Canada at the time, who are there to tell people that... Because so many people are coming up this trail and towards the Klondike, very, very, very unprepared, and people are dying along the way like they were on White Pass, the Northwest Mounted Police and the Canadian officials are saying, you must bring 1,000 pounds of goods into the Klondike. 
in order for you to pass this point, you need 1000 pounds of goods. And they have a list of things that people need to bring that includes lots and lots of food because a lot of people are dying due to starvation, um, ill preparedness, and that kind of stuff. Imagine getting to the top of a mountain and then being told, yeah, you didn't, you didn't bring enough stuff. Fuck off. It's like going to apply for a visa and it's really important. You get there and it's in another town. You get to the embassy and they're like, um, no, you got to turn. You you need twice as much as this. Cool, 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 cool. Thanks. And also, good luck pulling a thousand pounds of stuff up and over this mountain that's very near the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Apologies. It's actually one ton. So 2,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot. It's a lot. Um Jeez. <laughs> Two tons of shit to pull over a mountain in the Arctic Circle. So they can only enter Canada. They can only continue on their journey if they bring this stuff. Um, So people are trying to get to the gold. They really, really want to. So the system that gets worked out is you are ferrying bits and pieces of this one ton of stuff. One piece at a time. So people have to go down and back up with stuff and down oh and back God. up with stuff. Some people end up um, paying some of the local Tlingit peoples to help carry their stuff up, like paying them a not per pound amount <laughs> to help bring their stuff up. And that is one way that the Tlingit packers were making money um, because all these white people are all of a sudden coming into their traditional territories and disrupting their way of life. And so this is the solution that they come up with. Unfortunately for them, by the end of it all, they build a tramway along there to carry goods up. So they get put out of business as well in that respect. So were they taking individual pieces just like to the top, to the mounted police and being like, watch my stuff? (laughs) Literally, yes. They would build out their own little, you know, alcove. And if they happened to be doing this while it was snowing, you just have to put this really big long pole to mark where your stuff is in case it gets buried under snow. Oh my god. Um, And you're just entrusting that the Northwest Mounted Police, when you get up there, that your stuff is going to be there. And for the most part, it was. Like, there's not a lot of stories about people thieving other people's caches or anything like that. At least not in the stuff that I read. It seems the narrative, at least, is that people along the trail were very helpful and they just all were trying to get to the same place so they weren't outlaws. And according to the stuff that I was reading, that is thanks to the presence of the Northwest Mounted Police. Mm. But uh, that's one narrative that's being presented. I know that they probably brought up tons of stuff at once. Not literal tons, but you know what I mean. The the proverbial tons of stuff, wagon loads of stuff at a time to meet their one ton requirement. Mm -hmm. But I just like to imagine some dude like carrying like a pair of folded pants up the the mountain, putting it down. (laughs) A single bag of like potatoes puts it down. (laughs) So actually one one of the things that I read, I don't remember which book it was, but there are some Tlingit children that are helping participating in this, you know, economic exchange (laughs) and packing for the white people. Um, And they're carrying more than their own weight in stuff. Oh my God. Which is crazy. How strong strong are these people? And, but this is part of the, the trade route that they're using that the Tlingit who are kind of the coastal are using with the Tagish who are more inland to trade. So they've walked it many times. So they're well practiced in doing this. Wow. So these people are just bringing load after load. Not everybody could pay. Some people had to do it all themselves. Load after load up. And then you get to the top. 
oh my gosh, wonderful. But unfortunately, not everybody makes it to the top. Um, in particular, in the spring of 1898, there is a huge avalanche um, oh. in April, April 3rd, 1898, a huge avalanche um, between a spot called Sheep Camp and the scales on the Chilkoot Trail. So as they're headed up the mountain, it's still on the side where you're heading upwards. There's five slides that directly involved stampeders, three of which resulted in deaths and rescue operations were ongoing for about four days after these avalanches. And the numbers aren't firm, but between 40 and 70 people died in these avalanches alone. Um, And the reason that there isn't really great firm numbers is because as you can imagine, when there's 20,000 people going up this trail, it's a really transient population. There's really poor record keeping. And also once the bodies have been retrieved from this avalanche, if they can be retrieved, um, some of them are shipped elsewhere to be buried because they're not, these people aren't from here. They have mm-hmm. no family or no ties here. So some of them are sent away. Um, there's actually a, a tent at Sheep Camp, which is along the trail, as I mentioned, that was donated for use as a morgue for the purposes of retrieving these bodies and holding them um, until they can be sent down the trail. I feel like that would be a good sign if you're hiking up and you're carrying, you know, your eighth load of, I don't know, camping stoves uh, sort of thing. And you're like, hmm, I wonder what that tent's for. And they're like, it's a morgue for all the people who keep dying between here and the top where you're going. (laughs) I'd be like, huh, you know what? Maybe I'll just take my camping stoves home. Maybe Maybe I'll just turn back. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea, guys. Yeah. Yeah. How many corpses do you have to go past to be like, yes, this is worth a suitcase full of gold? Well, I mean, back to the Mount Everest example, every year people prove the fact that it's actually an uncomfortably large amount of corpses that people are willing to pass by just for bragging rights that they climbed Mount Everest. So, yeah. I, And yeah, could you imagine can... if the lure is the promise of, of what gold? is now for us, millions of dollars of gold in your one claim, which is literally what was happening to people? I think Quiche, Skookum Jim's claim was like, $3 million worth in today's dollars. I'm not 100% oh, wow. certain, but one of the things, one of the videos that I watched, I think that was the number. Um, oh so it's God. a lot of money. Hey, listeners, tell us, hit us up on Twitter or Instagram and tell us how many corpses you would climb over for a suitcase of gold in the Arctic Circle. How many Just suitcases, curious. how many corpses would you crawl over, Mariah, for a suitcase for a of suitcase gold? suitcase of gold? I feel like there's a, a line that once you cross, it's all just earth. I feel like once you get past 25, it's all just the same and you don't notice anymore because you're dissociating so five. <laughs> I Yeah, but I'm like, I think for me it would be maybe like two. And then I would have to bow out and be like, nope. The first horse corpse, I would lose my shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's brutal. And people weren't only using horses on, like, there were dogs and stuff too. So if you've mm-hmm. ever if you've ever read um, Jack London's Call of the Wild, or mm-hmm. you've heard of that yep. book... It's set the Klondike Gold Rush, so a dog is, is essentially yeah, a dog was... is essentially uh, oh. stolen from like California, I think, and he's taken up north and he right. succumbs to his wild nature. I read it after I started doing all this research because I was like, it's a pretty short book. Never read it before. Might as well. Um, yeah, yeah so people that, were taking dogs as well. Read that uh, as a kid, and I remember it kind of scarred me a little bit. Uh-huh. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sorry to sideline you there. Oh, no apologies necessary. So, yeah, they're using a tent as a 
temporary morgue. Uh, and there's a local citizens committee who is appointed to preside over the processing of bodies and burial. Um, and there are eyewitness reports that, you know, they do a good job. They issue the death certificates. It's all good. But um, other reports say that there's this is just kind of like local gang leader who kind of runs things in particularly Skagway, but also in Dai, uh, named Soapy Smith. <laughs> and he appointed himself coroner and had all his buddies ransack the bodies for jewels and cash and other valuables. So that's one opposing story. Hmm. So who's to say? In any case, some of the bodies are shipped elsewhere to be buried with their back to their loved ones. And some that go unclaimed are buried at the bottom of Chilkoot Trail in Dai in a cemetery that is known as Slide Cemetery. And this is somewhere you can actually go and visit today. It's still there, um, even though Dai is a ghost ghost town. Um, you can still go to Slide Cemetery and see some of these graves, which is interesting. And they'll probably be April 3rd, April 4th, 1898 death dates, because that's when this was happening. Wow. Yeah. Seems You're not going like... to bury them on the mountain. <laughs> Seems kind of like there was business, not just in the gold, but also, you know, with all of these people traveling up there. Seems like a pretty good spot to open, like, a convenience store sort of thing. <laughs> like a 19th century. I, I say convenience store loosely. I don't mean, like, you're you're not going to go get, like, a bottle of 7-Up in a Mars bar. Mm. But, like, oh, yeah. There was a guy. Oh, I'm trying to remember his name. There were so many names. But there was a, a, a gentleman who kind of was claimed, I think it was Skagway, the land in Skagway for himself. And then people started showing up and it was madness and chaos. And people were just kind of like camping and setting up things wherever they wanted. And he was like, wait, but you need to pay me. I'm, this is mine. (laughs) 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 It was, uh, it was funny to read. Um, That one scene from the first movie or the first Shrek movie. This is my swab. This is my swab. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about Beetle from uh, Breath of the Wild with his, like, like conveni on the go. So your little sheep camp Beetle slash sheep, sheep camp 7-Up or 7-Eleven. Not 7-Up. Pound of potatoes. Get your potatoes. <laughs> Take them off the trail. <laughs> um, all this after we've been talking about a deadly avalanche. Yeah. Um, Several deadly avalanches. <laughs> yeah. Uh, three days after this tragedy, the Dai Press headlines announced a disastrous avalanche. Loss of life greater than at first reported. Traffic continues unimpeded on the trail. <laughs> Some people, people took a brief moment. Some people took a brief moment, you know, dig out these bodies. But then people get back to their original goal, which is to get to the gold fields. Um, so pe- there's a lot more successful people taking the Chilkoot Pass trail than the White Pass. But... Either way, whichever way you go, um, once you get to, you know, the end, you get to the top of the mountain and you got to make your way down the bottom a little bit, you reach a series of lakes and rivers, which feed into the Yukon River eventually, which is where everybody's trying to get. So um, what's the easiest way to get through? I think it's like 500 miles. All the books are giving American measurements. I don't know how many kilometers that is. I'm sorry. 500 miles of lakes and rivers, 20,000, 30,000 people trying to make their way. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to cut down entire forests surrounding the lakes and build themselves some boats, some really, really shitty boats. 
Oh, they didn't even do like a one tree canoe situation? No. no I guess they building... all have a ton of stuff. Yeah, so they have to cart all their stuff Jesus. with them. Um, <laughs> so they're building these really terrible boats and heading down. So the first little while, there's some lakes, all that kind of stuff. But once you get to like right above Whitehorse, which is now the capital of Yukon, right when you get right there, you know, there's some rapids above Whitehorse. So not everybody made it. It was pretty dangerous even to ride down. Eventually, the Northwest Mounted Police decided that it was not safe for women and children to ride down the rapids. So they made women and children get out before the rapids, let uh, whoever was with them, the men that were still in the boat, ride down with the stuff. And then the women and children had to walk and then rejoin the boat, which, I mean, I guess... And then at a certain point, they also required that they pay the people who, with their boats, they would pay a skilled navigator to take them through to prevent the loss of life. Uh, Somewhat effective. But still, many people were dying. People were just lost in the river. And also, there's a freeze up pretty soon because we're pretty far north at this point. So the rivers are literally freezing over if you head too late. And I think there was a story about a journalist I believe, who was headed up that way and they just about didn't make it before it, it froze. But they, oh they were, God. he made it, but it was cutting it really close in the early fall, I believe. I don't know the exact time that it freezes over and it, of course it depends on the year, but pretty difficult, treacherous navigation. Um, so much so that they forced the women and children to get out. <laughs> Eventually, the people who are lucky enough to make it, you finally make it to this rich gold field. And for those that weren't in Yukon or in Alaska, you know, to begin with, when this all was happening, the ones who had to travel from up from the west coast of the United States and from Canada, what do they find but a city, a bustling city of all these people who are flocking. And it's called Dawson City, sometimes referred to as the Paris of the North, one of the largest cities in North America at the time. So many people trying to get their gold, and they're all flocking here. Very booming town in 1898. So these people arrive in 1898 because it took them so long to get there after the people who came with their suitcases of gold made their way back down the coast in summer 1897. Takes so much planning and so much time to get there. Because the journey itself, once you get, get on the boat to head up towards it, it takes like three months at the time. So you got to head out soon. So it was a little too late for people to really get there in time um, in 1897. But the people who get there in 1898, they missed a bad, bad year in Dawson City. The winter of 1897, 1898, there was a lot of people who were starving in the city because there's this influx of people just from Alaska and Northwest Territory at the time. So there's more people... There's no infrastructure. There's very little food. These are a bunch of people who are used to their own diets and food being readily accessible to them. And they don't know how and where to get their food. They don't know how to fish and hunt caribou like the local First Nations do and how they've survived for thousands and thousands of years. So not only are some people starving, but some people are also dying of scurvy, which is somewhat unheard of. It's not just beyond pirates. pirates. <laughs> <laughs> I 
because they're not getting enough vitamins. They're basically eating tinned food and like tinned food, bacon, fat, meat, all these kind of things and no vitamins. So they're getting scurvy. Doesn't Um, every undergraduate graduate class have at least one guy who gets scurvy because he's moved out of home for the first time and nobody can tell him to eat vegetables? Uh, Or was that just my grad class? (laughs) I feel like I've known several uh, dudes who, not confirmed, but I suspect had scurvy at some point. Monster Energy just doesn't have the nutritional requirements to prevent scurvy, I don't think. I can't say I've ever met anyone who had scurvy. Although, who knows? Eat your vegetables, kids. Eat Uh, your vegetables. Yeah, eat your vegetables. Eat your fruit. Just have some orange juice, even. Yeah. Um, the way that the, the local First Nations would get their vitamin C or whichever vitamin you need, I think it's vitamin C to prevent scurvy, they would just mm-hmm. pick berries. But the impression that a lot of these stampeders and the, the gold seekers had of the First Nations was they only ever saw them eating fish, really. So they just assumed, oh, you can eat fish and be fine. You must be built differently. But they didn't see them eating gathering and eating berries so they didn't think to go gather and eat berries themselves at least that's that's what i read that was the the funny quip that uh, i read <laughs> that's dinguses. interesting because it also just to tie in the franklin expedition again um because i guess there's like firsthand oral histories among the inuit people of white men like they essentially witnessed white men carrying around dismembered corpses of their friends because they were they resorted to cannibalism and i guess they actually offered them seal meat and the franklin expedition or the surviving members of the expedition actually refused it because they yeah and they had to resort to cannibalism even though the inuit people were like uh are you guys okay and they're like we're fine and then they (laughs) all died each other yeah gnawing on some thigh bones (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so, um, 19th century was a wild time. Really, really was. Uh, Also, if you had a Mortals Bingo card out and you were looking for cannibalism mentions, there you go. (laughs) Oh, yes, always (laughs) the cannibalism. Um, Don't bring it up on purpose, it's just, there's, you know... It's very related to these sorts of uh, death events. Yes, so, for those who are arriving from, quote-unquote, the outside world to the Klondike. They miss out on that uh, that starvation. And that's part of the reason why the Northwest Mounted Police were saying, hey, you need to bring the one ton of stuff. You need to make sure you have enough food. Otherwise, you're going to die. Like, you are going to die if you don't do this. <laughs> Not being hyperbolic. <laughs> Only the strong are allowed to pass into Canada towards the Klondike in this direction. Well, I'm sure uh, so, that also, like, just stressed out, like, local infrastructure, like, what local infrastructure there was to an insane degree just because it got people dropping left and right and there's no food. So people, there's probably more theft because people are starving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. I don't know about theft. I didn't read anything about that, but that's not to say that there wasn't. But people were definitely struggling that winter. So for those who arrived you know, in 1898 after that, and they brought their food with them. They didn't have to worry so much about starvation. Still some problems of scurvy. They weren't taking up the the berries as much. Um, But what they did have to deal with was this booming city of 30,000 people, once everybody's all there, with really poor infrastructure, 
no sanitation. So in 1898, I think in the starts in the summer, so right when all of these people are here all at once trying to scramble for their claims, there's a typhoid epidemic. There's dysentery and malaria, which are also really common. Uh, and people are dying, dying yeah. of all this these diseases that, you know, with modern public health measures are preventable. And unfortunately for the Trondekwechen peoples who, where Dawson City is building itself up was part of their traditional territories. It's actually a spot where, I believe where they would fish salmon. It's like an encampment where they would fish for salmon. Um, and they're, of course, displaced. The place that they moved to second is... <laughs> the spot where the Northwest Mounted Police have decided they're going to put their post. So they're forced to move again downriver. And now they're downriver from Dawson City with this poor sanitation runoff into the river. And so they are also suffering from outbreaks of typhoid and diphtheria. Um, So it's just a bad time all around for the people who come unprepared for the people who end up in this city that is unprepared as far as infrastructure and sanitation is concerned. And it's bad for the local First Nations groups as well. People are not having a good time as far as their health is concerned. In Mm -hmm. Dawson City in 1897, starvation, and 1898, um, it levels off a little bit, but it's still pretty difficult. And actually, there was a something that I read in the one of the books is called children of the Klondike that I picked up. Um, obviously focuses a little bit more on the experience of the children of the people that are up seeking the gold. And according to this author, it was less likely for children to be dying of typhoid and all these things, mostly because it was being spread a lot in like the, the pubs or whatever in the drink, yeah. in the drinking water that's being used to, you know, make the beer or cut the beer, water it down. So it's spreading to the adult population, but not so much the kids. And there's a lot of families that remark upon Dawson as a great place, a healthy place to bring up your kids where they'll grow up strong and with fortitude, which I thought was really flip side, I suppose. I'd like to finish. I didn't actually get a chance to finish reading this book. It's quite long, but so... People are dying from this poor sanitation. Um, you can imagine. I don't know how many deaths. I couldn't find record of any of that. But there are several many cemeteries in Dawson City in particular, which is really the, the confluence of all these people heading to several the Klondike gold fields. <laughs> several cemeteries that are in use even at the time. So there's one called Third Avenue Cemetery, which is one of the older ones. Um, Yukon Order of Pioneers Cemetery and Hillside Cemetery, I think, are the big ones that are being used during the Klondike Gold Rush, which technically is from 1896, August 16th, 1896 is when they, they strike the gold to begin with, to 1899 are usually the dates given. So only three years. But there's a lot of people, 30,000, 40,000 people in this area at the time. And it's like um, a shanty town, right? Because this is just oh, absolutely. what people have 
broad. There's no real infrastructure. There's no real, like, strong buildings. Ramshackle buildings. You know, there's fires and all that kind of stuff. Stuff gets destroyed. One step People up rebuild. from a tent city. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one of the curious things that I came across in my research is there was a comment that a lot of the really well-known, prolific gold seekers, gold miners, big guys who struck it big, they're not... They didn't die in the Klondike, so they're not buried in the Klondike. They leave with their gold. And it's really only the people who kind of start to make their home there, think more long-term, kind of end up buried there. A few big names of prospectors who are buried there, but for the most part, it's a pretty humble cemetery. And on that note, there's a lot of people who do strike gold, but they spend all. They spend all their gold. They're just having a real good old time in the pubs and in the, um, what do you call them? The brothels. Brothels. In the brothels. Spending all their money. They're just living it up. The single men, for the most part. The families, a lot of the families are the ones that take their money elsewhere. Um, That's not to say that the single men don't either, but a lot of people do pretty much leave the way they came. Um, Prospectors who did strike it rich and had their loved ones die, so say they came up with their families, or I don't know if they would marry along the way. There's not a lot of women who come, there's not a lot of women who come independently. They would come with their husband, not on their own. So those who did strike it rich would sometimes send the bodies of loved ones home to wherever they called home. Because there's not a lot of people who would necessarily consider this being up in Yukon, in Dawson City, or around the gold fields, their home. So they would send wherever. If people would die along the trails, along the Chilkoot Pass or the White Pass, as I mentioned, sometimes they would send back down to Dai or Skagway, like in the case of the Slide Cemetery from the Avalanche. Um, But sometimes they would bury them along the way. There was a few, in this Children of the Klondike book, there was a few um, parents of very young babies. So they some people would have babies along the way and they wouldn't make it. Um, and there was two parent sets of parents who knew each other, who both of their babies died along the trail, one first and then the other shortly after. And they're actually somewhere along, I believe, the Chilkoot Pass trail, buried next to each other. Two little baby graves. <laughs> oh, dear. So that's something that people would do as well. As you can imagine, it's a very transient population they're just moving their way through there and it's a it's a really hard journey uh and that's a hard decision to make as someone who loses someone along the way to just bury them wherever you can if the ground is even able to be dug into at the time that's why in some cases they would have to send the bodies or hold them in a tent morgue temporarily that's a hard decision to make too bury them and you'll probably never be able to visit their grave that i know that's a big part of particularly western culture and the the burying process is you want to be able to grieve and visit and that kind of thing and that's something that you'd be giving up in these cases um it's not like you're gonna wander the chill trail willy-nilly unless you have to and if you're just there to strike your gold and leave you're probably not going to be coming back in the end yeah I wonder how much of the like sunk cost fallacy there is in having to make that decision because by the time you're you know you're in the Chilkoot Pass you've been potentially on a boat for a month you've had to haul a ton 
of goods up after, after having gone up and down this mountain to find out that you need a ton of goods. Or to get farther and just to not make any money, but it's taken you months to get up here. Now you're frozen in. Like, I wonder how much of that sunk cost. We've already come this far, so let's go farther, even as people start dying. Really affected people. And the, the gambling aspect of it as well, that allure of hitting it big and making all that money. And is there a cap on that? Like, there are people that leave, as you say, but feels like something that really uh, bit people in the ass to mm-hmm. do. Yeah, and you know, like I said, for the most part, most of the claims were already staked from the people that were already, you know, up in the north. The outsiders, sometimes they would buy a claim off of someone who had like already dug up a certain amount of gold. But the Klondike goldfields in particular were very, very rich. So even if, you know, you mined it, what you thought was good enough for me, I've got enough gold for me, I'll just sell my claim. People would still pull out lots of gold but by far the people who were there first made the most money but the people who are on their way up there with that potential sunk cost fallacy in their minds they don't know that right who they don't nobody knows how much gold there is um all they know is people are bringing suitcases of gold home on the boat get them shiny shiny rocks yeah little pebbles but as i said the klondike gold rush is somewhat short-lived although it is particularly spectacular pretty soon thereafter when we're hitting the turn of the century there's a few other what's the next gold rush happening there's one in atlin which is in british columbia and one in nome alaska they kind of signaled the end of the klondike gold rush and a lot of people there was a mass you know exodus from dawson city as it swelled back down swelled isn't the right word when you're talking about downwards anyways it splooshed back down <laughs> to very low levels there weren't a lot of people left in in dawson city people moving on to the next gold rush as is the nature of prospectors and gold seekers but one thing that did come out of the klondike gold rush yukon was officially separated as its own territory from the northwest territories in June of 1898. So Canada decided we need to deal with this as its own thing because of the Klondike Gold Rush. So the reason there is a Yukon as a territory within Canada today is because of the Klondike Gold Rush. Whether that's for better or for worse, we have Yukon as a territory. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Because of gold. Because of All gold. The gold. And gold is a big part of the story of British Columbia as a province as well. Yeah. And I, I know that growing up in British Columbia. But it was really interesting for me to look a little bit into Yukon because I didn't really know a lot about it. And now I know a little bit more. Yeah, as do we. I didn't realize there had been that many people who were like, yeah, let's just go to the Arctic Circle for some shiny rocks. And I like, have either of you ever done any gold panning before? No, I actually haven't. Not. It's, I did it once at um, Barkerville up north. It's just a touristy thing that you can do. The water that they run through there is ice cold. Holy moly. It, I, I'm shocked there are more people who were like, yeah, I just lost fingers from hy- like from hypothermia panning for gold because it's it's cold water. Mm-hmm. And one thing, I did a lot of reading. The amount of research that we do for an episode and the amount that actually makes it into the episode is... 
a very disparate ratio. <laughs> the type of mining that they were doing is called placer mining. Mm. Um, the There was some gold that's just like able to be found, you know, in the river. But a lot of it is buried underneath, so they have to dig down. And then they originally were using hot, like, steam water to, like, slush up the layer with the gold in it. And then they'd pull the buckets up, and then they'd shake shake the gold. And they were getting, like, dollars and dollars worth of gold in a single pan, which is a lot. That's Um, a lot. But it's very destructive to the environment. So there's basically, I don't know what the technical term is, but there's these big mounds of dirt that is left behind. It's kind of like this weird snaky trails of the the leftover dirt from their mining. And it looks really funky. Um, So very disruptive to the natural environment as well. Yeah. Uh, And just to add, fixed our Twitter. (laughs) So come, come see us on Twitter at at podcast mortals. It's not the mortal combat one. (laughs) Finally fixed our Twitter. Come chat with me. Tell me how many bodies you would climb over. For a suitcase us. full of gold. Yeah, what would you do for for the sweet, sweet gold? I feel like we're just asking, isn't the entire pitch of like the Klondike bar is like, what would you do for a Klondike bar? Oh my you god! Do for a suitcase of gold. It is. That's, oh that, my god. It all makes sense now. It yeah. all makes it's sense. What would you do for a Klondike bar full of gold? So if you learned <laughs> nothing else from this episode, dear listener... You've learned that uh, people would do a lot for gold. They would do a lot for Klondike bar, uh, including not listening to local First Nations knowledge and dying. That's it. That's the episode. Full circle, baby. (laughs) Full circle. Thanks for Uh, listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there.